Welcome to Let It Lopate at Large. I'm Let It Lopate. Although he's had many achievements, Andre Gregory is probably best known as the co-star of the 1981 film My Dinner with Andre, in which he plays a raconteur and world traveler, a character based to some extent on himself. It's a two-person film in which Wallace Shawn, his longtime collaborator, plays his more conventional dinner partner. How that unexpected hit was created is just one of many compelling and fascinating events Andre Gregory writes about in a new memoir in which the settings range from wartime Paris to golden age Hollywood and from experimental theaters to monasteries in India. Book which is titled, This Is Not My Memoir, is published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux and I'm very pleased that it brings Andre Gregory to our show now. Hi, Andre. Good morning, sir. Pleasure to well, be with you again. It's 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 afternoon in New York, but yes, thank you. Oh well, um, it's afternoon here too. I just didn't notice it. <laughs> Why such a Dadaist title? Were you inspired by the Magritte painting? This is not a pipe. Oh, you know, I wasn't, but that's uh, that's one of my favorite works. No, um, I guess I guess I came up. We we came up with that title because the one thing I swore I would never ever, ever do was write a memoir. Mm-hmm. And then my editor and publisher, Will Schwalbe, uh, cornered me by making an offer I couldn't refuse. And uh, so I was forced into a corner and I was forced to, in a way to write it or seduced into writing it. But also, uh, this isn't at all a memoir in the conventional sense in that it doesn't cover everything in my life. It doesn't cover one traumatic event in my life. It's kaleidoscopic in structure. And like a novel, uh, there's a character in it who changes during the course of the book. He begins as um, a somewhat obnoxious, uh, completely... Uh, an angry, uh, as one critic called him, loose cannon, mm-hmm. uh, who over the progress of the book turns into a completely different kind of character. So it isn't quite a memoir in the conventional sense of it. So are you embarrassed by the person you were at the beginning? Your brother has described life as youth, middle age, and you're looking great. So right now you're in the you're, you're looking great era. Uh, well, that's not what I feel when I look into the mirror to shave in the morning. <laughs> but yes, I am. I am in that period of my life. I'm eighty. I'm eighty six, and uh, part of what's been thrilling about writing the book and about uh, the incredibly positive response to the book is, I think, well, I'm eighty six, but I'm not done yet. Your first show business story uh, involves when you were working with a burlesque stripper named Princess Totem Pole, where your job was to feed the blackbirds that stripped off her her clothes as part of her act. How does one even get a job like that? You know, I I was at loose ends. I was at college. I hated it. I hated my roommates. And (laughs) I took a cheap hotel room. Uh, in downtown Boston and just wandered into the great old burlesque 
house, the old Howard, and I saw her perform. I went backstage to tell Princess Totem Pole how much I liked mm-hmm. her act, and she offered me a job. And you, uh, for a while, you said that that story seemed too outrageous to be believable, but you realized when you're writing the book that it actually happened? Uh, oh, I, I realized it actually happened when an old college friend um, uh, came up to me uh, one night. And I'm getting these strange beeps on my phone, uh, but I guess we're all right. You there? I'm here. Good. Um, all the complexities of communicating in COVID, yes. John. Um, no, an old friend of mine from college uh, came up to me at a restaurant one night. I had assumed that this story was no longer true because it was so outrageous. And he said, boy, remember when I used to come visit you at the burlesque house and there was this stripper who was stripped by large blackbirds? And I realized it actually had happened. <laughs> but, you know, when when I look back on, on my book now, I'm just astounded by what a bizarre, extraordinary, colorful, adventurous life I've had. I can't believe I did it all. And politics has played a major role in your life. Your father worked for Leon Trotsky? Uh, yeah, he, he and Trotsky in the Soviet Union had uh, a fur concession, and they sold furs to the United States. Yeah. And, of course, uh, you know, as you can see in the book, I was a child in Europe when the war broke out. We, we had to come to the United States with a sister ship that was torpedoed. Uh, politics began my life, and uh, I remember trying to fight the McCarthy period in my own way and mm. being arrested three times uh, protesting the Vietnam War. So, um, yeah, I've always been in the heart of politics. After your father left Russia, which I guess he had to do because of the Trotsky connection, he lived in Weimar, Berlin, not a great place to, to live with, with the rise of Hitler, moved to Paris where you were born, then to London, um, and um, do you, he had to, it was complicated getting, bringing his wife and two sons to New York just before the German occupation of Paris. Uh, you, there was a little stopover in Canada as well because uh, Jews weren't really uh, invited to the United States at that time, were they? Uh, no, no. It's a, it's a myth, I think, that America went to war to help the Jews. I don't think they cared about the Jews. And it was hard for Jews to get American citizenship if they didn't have some money. America was quite anti-Semitic at the time. And I can remember even when I was first married, um, we tried, my wife and I tried to get an apartment on Upper Fifth Avenue. And we were turned down by the board because we were Jews. Now, you change, your parents changed their last name from Josephowitz to Gregory. When did they do that? They did that in 1940. Uh, they did that, I think, partly out of anti-Semitism in America, partly because it was an incredibly difficult name to pronounce. And 
my father wanted an easier name uh, for his business dealings. But despite the, uh, the, the anti-Semitism, you describe your life as, quote, private clubs, private schools, and debutante balls. So how did right. your father make the kind of money and connections to be able to give you that kind of life? Uh, well, you, all you needed was enough money to go to a private school, which, of course, unlike today, uh, was really not that much money. Uh, it was expensive, but it was not that expensive. And uh, in the 40s and 50s, there was a, a sort of old boys club. If you went to the right um, if you went to the right school, you could get into a good, a so-called good um, high school. If you went to a good, quote, high school, you could get into a good college. And if you got into a good college, you could get a great job with a New York law firm. So your, your way was paved by privilege. But you were always a bit of an outsider in those situations. What about your mother? Didn't she play gin rummy with Vladimir Horowitz and have an affair with Errol Flynn? She did. And in fact... Uh, How aware was your father of that? You know, I just don't know. I was, too, I was too young to know. But I was such a nasty child that when I saw my mother kissing Errol Flynn behind a bush, I said, if you're not nicer to me, I'm going to tell my dad. But... In a way, even more theatrical, she used to play uh, gin rummy once a week with Bugsy Siegel, the gangster who started wow. Las Vegas. And she was playing with him one night. They ended up uh, their game around three in the morning. She went home. And when she woke up in the morning, the big headline in the L.A. Times was Bugly, Bugsy Siegel assassinated by mafia. So he got his head mm. blown off about an hour after he and my mother said goodbye. Wow. Wasn't, Errol Flynn was right. wasn't Errol Flynn responsible for one of your few triumphs at school? Uh, he was, yeah, he, uh, he was. It was one of uh, the few nice things my mother did for me. Uh, we had, you know, our house, as you can read in the book, was filled with extraordinary people like Garbo and Dietrich and Fred Astaire, Is the Marx Brothers. And, Is that the house you, uh, you rented from Thomas Mann? Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well. You know, when you, when you say that, I think yet again, was that me? Could that have <laughs> actually happened to me? You know, yeah. And when I went back to school uh, the following autumn, I was boasting about knowing Errol Flynn. Nobody believed me. The kids started beating me up. And my mother got this Terrific idea of having Errol Flynn to lunch. What was Errol Flynn famous for now? He was a swashbuckling movie yes. actor, right? Yeah. Yes. And so he played Flynn Robin Hood and others like that. There you go, Robin Hood, right? Uh, so he was invited for lunch. A representative of my class was invited for lunch, and the idea was he would sign uh, a photograph and. The kid would go back to school and say, I wasn't a liar, I, uh, you know. But then Flynn was invited at 1 by 2.30. He still hadn't appeared. And my mother called the Waldorf Astoria, and they said he was in his room and they couldn't disturb him. 
So she went down to the Waldorf and started threatening the guy at the front desk that if he didn't let her into his room, uh, she would go to the press because she said she was pregnant uh, with Flynn's child. That could have been true. (laughs) So she was let into the room. He was in bed with a hooker. She (laughs) pulled him out of bed, put him into a cold shower, put him in a cab, brought him over to the house. Uh, he signed a picture for my classmate, and my reputation was saved. Uh, now, looking back at your parents' lives, do you feel more compassion for them now than you did while you were growing up? Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, uh, in, in fact, my, my wife, Cindy, made quite an extraordinary film called Andre Gregory Before and After Dinner, mm-hmm. which I think is going to be uh, screened as... Um, as a benefit for film forum. She's a filmmaker. She is a filmmaker. Very, in in fact, uh, the New Yorker just published a list of 62 of the greatest documentary filmmakers of all time. And she was listed Hmm. uh, as one of those. Uh, Now, why was I mentioning her film? You, you said that uh, she just made a documentary about oh, you. Oh, yeah. And we were yeah, talking uh, about your parents. Right. The, the film, uh, the film, I think, came out, I don't know, around seven years ago. And uh, in it, uh, it talks a lot about my parents with a lot of anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, since then, I've come to realize, you know what? These were two people who lived in incredibly difficult times, even harder than what we have been living through with Trump and the virus. And uh, their lives were threatened. Uh, Yes, maybe they had to make compromises to get out of Europe. Yes, maybe they weren't good parents, but they were young people and they were doing their best to get their family out. So. Uh, there is a lot of forgiveness in the book, and I'm happy about that. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Andre Gregory, who's written with the help of Todd London. This is not my memoir. It is published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. Uh, you, uh, after you graduated from Harvard, which you didn't like, you didn't like Harvard. You were rejected by Yale Drama School. Were you hoping to be an actor at that point? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, I, since I was 12 years old, my passion uh, was to be a, an actor. And I went up to Yale, uh, and I was interviewed by this legendary dean. And at the end of the interview, <laughs> he said to me, You know, it's very hard to interview a young person. They have no lines in their face. They're kind of tabula rasa. But every once in a while, I do meet someone who has absolutely no talent whatsoever. (laughs) I beg you, he said, don't go in. You know, the theater is hard enough if you're talented. But if you have no talent, become a doctor, become a lawyer. So I got on the train and went back to New York and I think sobbed the whole way. Uh, But that didn't stop you. You were attracted to the work of the Berliner Ensemble, the theater collective founded in 1949 by Bertolt Brecht. Uh, And didn't you first watch their plays without knowing how to speak German? 
Oh, I didn't speak a word of German, but their their plays had such clarity, some of the greatest theater I ever saw, that you actually understood what was going on uh, on the stage without even speaking the language. But you know, when you said a moment ago that that interview uh, with um, the dean at Yale didn't stop me, um, in the book, um, you you read about my being fired many times mm. about, um, oh, you, you know, after my dinner with Andre was released, I had, I had a fight with my father, one of the many. He was 84, I think, younger than I am now. And my wife went up to him and he said, I don't understand. What's the problem with Andre? Why does he always get so upset with me? And she said, well, I think sometimes he thinks you don't respect him. And he said, yeah. don't respect him. Of course I respect him. He could have been a great lawyer. <laughs> yeah, well, he, uh, he, he you, you say that your parents uh, really felt that you didn't have it when you had a string of failures, which we, we'll get into in a little bit. Um, but okay, so you didn't meet Brecht because he had just died. But uh, right. uh, you, you, this, how much impl uh, influence did it have? Uh, didn't they rehearse each production for many months, something that you're kind of famous for? Oh, uh, they they respect they they rehearsed sometimes for two or three years. And wow. yes, the last production I directed, uh, the Master Builder by Ibsen, the Wally translator. Mm -hmm. I think I rehearsed it on and off for fourteen years. <laughs> well, the actors yeah. get kind of old at that point. Well, they do. That's a danger. Yeah. <laughs> But by the time by the time we opened it, they were still not too old for their roles. Now you've you've worked with some pretty great people over the years. Uh, you worked with the Polish director Jerzy Grotowski, uh, and you call Grotowski's Polish Laboratory Theater the greatest acting company in the world. Um, yes. But yeah, yeah. Now they they had an excruciatingly difficult physical. Uh, he he had them do uh, physical exercises, uh, which uh, are you still doing the sixty push-ups a day now that you're eighty-six? Uh, you know, <laughs> you know that's a good question. I was uh, until about six months ago, and then my damn knee got so oh. painful. Yeah, I, I was supposed to have surgery in December, but because of COVID, they've postponed it. So. With the bad knee, it is hard to do the push-ups, but I promise you, once the surgery is over, I will do my best to slowly return to 60 push-ups. But what are the objectives of those exercises for actors? Well, the, the purpose of the exercises is that most actors simply use their emotions, to some extent, their facial gestures to express what it is they want to express. In Grotowski's company, an actor could control up to 40 different muscles in their face alone. So you would have an impulse, an emotional impulse, and then your body would choose the one gesture or motion in the face that would articulate it. 
the best. It was astounding. Now, at the same time that you were drawn to the tradition of Brecht and Grotowski, you also studied Stanislavski and Strasberg. Uh, aren't they contradictory traditions? Not really. No, uh, Stanislavski had many different periods in his life, uh, just as Picasso had many different periods. And Strasberg took from one period. So it was somewhat limited, but it was still from one of the Stanislavski periods. Stanislavski, you know, was the Cezanne of the theater. And so many people like Brecht, Tosky, Strasberg, yours truly, have been profoundly affected by Stanislavski's work. What about Strasberg? You studied with him at the workshops held at the Actors Studio on West 44th Street. Yeah. Um, was, was he a great influence? He was a great influence because Strasberg was the Talmudic rabbi of the theater. He knew every single book that had ever been written on acting. And uh, he showed me that the theater, in fact, is the actors, not the director, not even in a certain way the playwrights. It's the actor, and it's the actor who brings the directors and the playwrights' vision to life. And of you course, because... Go I'm ahead. Sorry, what? Go ahead. I'm sorry I interrupted. I was just going to say that uh, because of Strasbourg, uh, in a way, he created many of the great actors, Brando, Montgomery Cliff, you know, um, Geraldine Page, who brought the great plays of Tennessee Williams to life in the 50s. He was a great influence on the theater. You described the day you directed your first scene for Strasbourg as one of the most awful in your life. Were you intimidated by the celebrities in the audience, Paul Newman and Marilyn Monroe, among others? Uh, oh, yeah. I was intimidated by them. I and Strasbourg was critical of you. Oh, rip me to shred. <laughs> you know, now that you mention it, because earlier you talked about my uh, continuing, in spite of the Yale guy destroying my ego, I think one of the themes in the book that's important to maybe everyone, is that talent, lots of people are talented. They're talented at acting, talented at painting, talented at marriage. But talent doesn't count for that much. What really counts is, I think, tenacity and perseverance, hanging in there, not mm -hmm. giving up. You know, it's like right, right now, I know... Uh, I know friends who are tempted to just say, oh, to hell with it. Sure, there's COVID. We're still going to invite 20 people for Thanksgiving. And I'm saying, mm. no, don't, don't do that. The end is in sight. Yes, it's going to be a very hard, dark winter. But the winter will end and hope is in sight. Don't give up. It's next year. Well, you, you did yeah. a lot of work on... Uh, regional theaters in Philadelphia, San Francisco, Los Angeles. Uh, that's in the 50s and 60s doing experimental theater with uh, some minor successes, uh, some failures, and a couple of times you were fired. Oh, uh, in one case, uh, my board of directors was so outraged by what I was doing 
that they fired me. <laughs> and when I wouldn't go, they said, we're not going to pay you. I said, that doesn't matter. I'm going to stay and direct. It's my theater. So they called the paddy wagon. And the police took me out of my Philadelphia theater, drove me across the state line and dropped me in New Jersey. Yeah, well, that was the play that uh, that featured sex, cannibalism, and filthy language, and got yep, terrible yep. reviews, but became a hit. Yep, that was it. <laughs> that was it. And you know, um, there are yeah, there are some wonderful stories I think in the book about the horrible scrape <laughs> I got into. Um, you know, I I was difficult. I was talented, and I was difficult. And you were being provocative. You started the Manhattan Project, a theater group. Uh, now, that name, Manhattan Project, of course, is what we associate with the creation of the atomic bomb. Yeah, well, we, we called it the Manhattan Project because as we rehearsed, we were sure we were creating a bomb that nobody would want to go and see. And no one could have been more surprised than us when it ran for six years and became an international hit. We thought it was going to be a bomb. That was Alice in Wonderland. Uh, yes. Now, most adaptations of Lewis Carroll rely on fabulous sets and costumes. Your version was performed on a bare stage with a minimum of props. Uh, yeah. And the group did lengthy improvisations during rehearsals uh, to help you overcome the, the challenges? Well, I was, I was fascinated. I was fascinated by what is it that's unique to theater, uh, you know, that film can do, but theater can't do, because film and theater, in a way, are in competition. And very often, theater directors try to win that competition by huge sets and extraordinary lighting, and amazing music. I was interested in... Well, I used to call it an actor who can fly. And what would, it, what would happen if you had none of those accoutrements of theater? If you, have a, if you have a rabbit hole, that a rabbit goes down, but there's nothing on the stage. It's a bare stage, and you don't have a camera to create the sense of falling. How do you create a hole, and how does Alice fall down it? If you have a queen, if you have a queen's croquet, but you have no wickets, no croquet balls, no mallets, if the actors have to become the wickets and the balls, how do you do that? You know, if you've got uh, if you've got a caterpillar who's sitting smoking a hookah on a mushroom, but you have no mushroom and no hookah, how do you do that? Hmm. Well, Alice was generally well-received. The New York Times in 1970 said the play was both funny and terrifying, and it ran for four years and toured the world. And then why did the Manhattan Project break up? Oh, it broke up because uh, every theater company uh, has a, a life sentence on it. You know, most companies last at the most uh, eight or nine years. And also... The times were changing. The actors were getting older. They couldn't, they had, were getting families. They couldn't work for as little money as they'd worked in the past. And, you know, a director has to be kind of a group therapist. 
And I wasn't very good at that at that time. So conflicts developed, the times changed, and this wonderful work we'd done together for 12 years came to an end. When did you begin to paint? Your, your self-portrait is on the book cover. You recently had an art exhibit at Monica King Contemporary Gallery in Tribeca. Uh, do you enjoy the solitary experience of painting in contrast to the collaborations of theater? Well, I love it. You know, uh, when we were doing The Master Builder, we needed a film director to make it into a film. And I, I took a scene to Sidney Lumet, who I thought would do a good mm -hmm. film. And he said, oh, I love the work. But Andre, I'm 84 years old. I can't direct a movie anymore. And of course, the theater, you know, you have all the psyches of the actors you're responsible for. You have their livelihood that you're responsible for. You have to find a rehearsal space, money for the rehearsals. It's a lot. And with painting, of course, all you need is um, enough money to buy some brushes and some paint, mm -hmm. and you can just do it. But I started painting uh, in a funny way. We got to Cape Cod about 15 years ago, and I fell so in love with the Cape that I was afraid I would retire which I hope I never will do. And I got so paranoid about retiring that my wife, Cindy, said, why don't you take a class in painting? Uh, there are lots of great painters up here. And I was terrified of doing it because, you know, if you do one thing well, like directing, starting out as something where you're just going to be lousy at it takes a certain amount of courage. And so I went to a painting class terrified. I was like a little boy going to school for the first time. And, you know, I, I did something kind of ugly and awful, but I kind of had fun. And then at the end of the class, the, the you call it the live model, you know, uh, mm -hmm. who'd been uh, live model, started walking around the room naked. And she was sort of saying to herself, where the hell did I put my candies? Where, where are my candies? <laughs> and I was suddenly terrified that I might have wiped my brushes clean with her panties. But when it, when it turned out that, in fact, somebody had done that, but it was the woman next to me, I thought, oh, maybe painting could be fun. And I've been doing it ever since. Uh, you uh, collaborated on, on this book with Todd London. Uh, the author of several books of fiction and nonfiction. Um, so you, you 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 paint, you act, you direct, but you did need help in in writing. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM streaming live at WBAI.org. I mean, really, tell me, why do we require a trip to Mount Everest in order to be able to perceive one moment of reality? I mean, I mean, is Mount Everest more real than New York? I mean, isn't New York real? I mean, you see, I think if you could become fully aware of what existed in the cigar store next door to this restaurant, I think it would just blow your brains out. I mean, I mean, isn't there just as much reality to be perceived in the cigar store as there is on Mount Everest? I mean, what do you think? You see, I think that not only is there nothing more real about Mount Everest, I think there's nothing that different in a certain way. I mean, because reality is is uniform in a way, so that if, you're, if your perceptions are, I mean, if your own mechanism is, is operating correctly, 
it would become irrelevant to go to Mount Everest and, and sort of absurd because I mean it just I mean I mean of course on some level I mean obviously it's very different from a cigar store on Seventh Avenue but I mean well, well I agree with you Wally but the problem is that people can't see the cigar store now I mean things don't affect people the way they used to I mean, it may very well be that 10 years from now, people will pay $10,000 in cash to be castrated just in order to be affected by something. Well, why, why do you think that is? I mean, why is that? I mean, is it just because people are, are lazy today or they're bored? I mean, are we just like bored, spoiled children who've just been lying in the bathtub all day, just playing with their plastic duck, and now they're just thinking, well, what can I do? Okay, yes, we are bored. We're all bored now. But has it ever occurred to you, Wally, that the process that creates this boredom that we see in the world now may very well be a self-perpetuating, unconscious form of brainwashing created by a world totalitarian government based on money, and that all of this is much more dangerous than one thinks? And it's not just a question of individual survival, Wally, but that somebody who's bored is asleep, and somebody who's asleep will not say no? A couple of minutes from my dinner with Andre, uh, we heard Wallace Shawn and Andre Gregory. Uh, Andre Gregory is our guest today talking about This Is Not My Memoir, a, a new book from Farris Strauss and Giroux. This is Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI.org, and I am Leonard Lopate. And we have a wonderful surprise. Wallace Shawn has joined us. Hi, Wally. Hello. Hello, now, Wally. He sounds, I mean, he sounds exactly the same, <laughs> and I sound completely different, and, and uh, I've slowed down. What happened? Oh, well. <laughs> oh. Well, you've known each other for 45 years now. How did you first meet? Wally? Oh, you better tell that story, Wally. Well, it, it was, um, you know, Andre... Um, knew uh, the the writer Renata Adler, and uh, she was that back in those days, 1969 or 70, she was uh, one of the only two people, really, who liked my writing. And uh, she suggested very strongly that I should go to see Alice in Wonderland which I found at that time, I thought that anything I saw would influence me and, and change me. Um, I was a young man. I had these beliefs. And uh, so I, I didn't want to go, but finally I did go and it did change me. And here we are. Uh, I, 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 I sh I went to Andre at a certain I saw the play a certain number of times a couple of times or three times and and I immediately gave Andre a very big envelope of my plays and I I said well your play has overwhelmed me and um, I want you to read what I've written and. Uh, Nobody else in the theater had ever really liked my plays, and he did, and he he summoned me. Mm. 
and he commissioned you to write a modern adaptation of Ibsen's Pure Gint. But uh, it, that Ibsen play turned into a play called Our Late Night, which was set at a New York City cocktail party. Well, it wasn't really meant to be. Uh, uh, that was not the adaptation of Pure Gint. I mean, we he hmm. wanted me to write an adaptation of Pure Gint, and we agreed to drop that. Hmm. And I said, well, I'll write a play for your company instead. And it was a success. Andre, how many projects have you worked on together since? Oh, God. We, we worked on Our Late Night, that play Wally's talking about, mm. uh, on Beckett's Endgame, where Wally played a blind violinist, uh, on My Dinner with Andre, Glasses of a Thousand Colors, the Designated Mourner, two great, great plays, which incidentally, uh, we've just recorded as podcasts, which I mm. think are going to be brilliant. And then The Master Builder. Uh, and Uncle Vanya. And Uncle Vanya, which became Vanya on 42nd Street. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of work. But who work came up with them. the idea of recording the two of you talking about a variety of subjects and then... Uh, making that, uh, adapting that into a play. That was Wally. That was, wasn't that you, Wally? I think so. Well, it, it was a, uh, it evolved, let's say. Well, it's, it's a, your, your title is My Dinner with Andre, so obviously the my yeah. is you, Wally. It's me. Uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it, uh, the, the original thought was that maybe it could be, uh, for television, two talking heads, um, and uh, you know it, it's based on what I mean. The material is is uh, the raw material was uh, several months worth of uh, free floating, unstructured conversation on an audio recorder. But it, they, although they're modeled on the two of you, they really aren't you. So you were creating fictionalized versions of yourselves? Well, yes. I would say because, so. Yeah, yeah Andre, I, uh, you relate stories about your travels, your spiritual experiences, and theatrical production, while Wally talks about the ordinary pleasures of life, like having a cup of coffee. And do you think that the conflict that the two characters articulate reflect your actual personalities? I don't think so. What do you think, Wal? Well, the idea was to select uh, aspects of our personalities that uh, were useful for creating these two quite opposed points of view. Um, I mean, in reality, we couldn't have created this uh, together in, if we hadn't uh, actually had much more in common. Obviously, we, we uh, but that's not quite as good a story or as funny. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I thought it would be funny. The whole thing would be, we, we all, you know, were thinking of it as a piece that was going to be at least partly or mostly comedic. Um, and we, so the idea of 
me as the guy who stuck up for the bourgeois values and Andre as the adventurer, I mean, there is truth. Certainly Andre did adventurous, amazing things, and I didn't. And, uh, you know, he he had many beliefs uh, that I didn't share, but, you know, we basically uh, uh, are very, you know, have a lot in common, obviously. Well, Andre, you began by performing My Dinner with Andre as a stage reading at London's Royal Court Theatre. But then uh, how did you get the, the great French filmmaker, Louis Malle, who the director of Pretty Baby, Atlantic City, Au revoir les enfants, uh, involved uh, in uh, the filming of that theatrical production? Uh, well, as I remember it, you know, it was very, 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 very difficult. Who in the world would want to uh, direct what fine uh, filmmaker would want to direct a play where two guys just sit at the table and talk and yeah. The two guys at that point you'd never heard of. But we had a friend in common. Correct me if I'm wrong, Wally. Diana Michener, yeah. who was a wonderful photographer. And she, who knew Louis well, I guess, gave the script to Louis. Isn't that right, Wall? Yes. And this was long before we, we never thought of it as a play. And uh, we did it at the Royal Court after we had already been rehearsing the movie with Louis for many, many months. And he wanted us to do a live performance uh, before we did the final filming. So uh, although he hated our actual live performance and was quite <laughs> uh, uh, unpleasant about it in a way. Um, well, well, the film acting is very different from theater acting. So uh, did the two of you learn anything from the experience? Uh, shooting oh, it, I guess, in a long abandoned hotel in Richmond, Virginia, where, uh, where there wasn't enough money in your budget to heat the hotel during the filming. Oh, I, le I learned an enormous amount because unlike Wally, I'd never acted in a film. In fact, I hadn't acted since I was about 24 years old. And one day when we were rehearsing, uh, I said to Louis, you know, I think there's much more in this monologue than we're getting. Could I try it again? Just try it my way. So I did it. I loved what I did. It was very emotional. And I said to Louis, how's that? And he said, that's awful. That's theater <laughs> acting, <laughs> not film acting. I said, but, you don't, you uh, don't, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, he, he said, you know, well, one day, one day he gave me maybe my one direction. He said, talk faster. And I mm. said, is that because I'm boring? And he said, no, it's because you're acting like a theater actor. You don't uh, need to do that. If you talk faster, uh, we've rehearsed so much that the role is just a part of you now. Uh, now, nonetheless, would you say that your part became the longest speaking role in the history of film? I would say so, yeah. And did you both have to memorize or did you do some improvisation? 
Well, no, we had to memorize. I think it yeah, took me about nine or ten. Yeah. But we learned yeah, people, from the, doing the stage version, I think we learned the shape of the piece better than we ever could have otherwise. And even though, um, you know, certainly I respond uh, to an audience by showing off a bit, something <laughs> that as an actor, Andre has had to wean me away from over the decades. But I think probably Louis felt, and by the way, the audience was only 60 people. It was not a big audience, but still, you, you, it is different from film, even with 60 people. And even with, uh, you know, we, we did uh, uh, Master Builder for 25 people, and uh, Jonathan Demme. Uh, you work with some pretty good directors. Yeah, I mean, great. Jonathan Demme. Directors. Mm. Jonathan Demme directed the film of The Master Builder, and he uh, was quite hard on me in, in, you know, saying it has to be less theatrical even than a performance for 25 people. Now, what was the uh, audience response to the first screening at the Telluride Film Festival? Uh, wasn't there a long stretch of silence before the audience began to, to laugh and, and applaud? Oh, I think so. I think it was terrifying. Uh, you know, the, they, <laughs> Why do you was, think there was such a long silence? Were they trying to figure it out or uh, were they stunned? Well, I, I don't know what you think, Walt, but you know, who had ever seen two people just sit and talk uh, at a table like that? And I, I don't think they knew what the hell it was going to be about. Once, mm. once the laugh started coming, uh, then uh, it was jubilant. But what, what would you say, Wal? What? Why I, I would so say stunned? they, you know, they were waiting for the movie to begin. I mean, this seemed <laughs> right, like right. an introduction, <laughs> you know, that was going to open out into something and it didn't seem to be going that way and they didn't know whether it was supposed to be funny or not mm. um and uh you know of course it's both i mean it's uh, funny but it's also serious in many ways at the same time but but i think if you don't get that it's funny um, it, it doesn't really come off. And, and certainly we heard that uh, when it was dubbed and into German, <laughs> it came off as uh, completely serious. And people uh, didn't get it, you know. Uh, well, a lot of people have because... It's become something of a cultural touchstone. My Breakfast with Blasey is Andy Kalpin's 1983 film with wrestler classy Freddie Blasey. There's a 1993 Simpsons episode. A character in Christopher Guest's Waiting for Guffman has a set of My Dinner with Andre action figures. Now, what kind of reviews did it get? Uh, didn't Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert indicate, dedicate an entire episode of their TV show at the movies to the film? Oh, oh yeah. Uh, and I think they named it one of the best films of the year with Red. Wasn't that true, mm. Wally? Well, they uh, actually, they, I, as I remember it, their initial 
review had three films that they covered that week, including Reds, which they, as my memory, and I haven't seen this for many decades, so I could be wrong, but my memory is that they gave Reds a great review, and then they ended with My Dinner with Andre and said it was even better, Mm. which was pretty incredible because our previous reviews had been, you know, tepid, and we were not getting audience. Oh, but people didn't epic. understand it, and then they suddenly understood it? Because it really was a big success. It was I, a success. I don't know anybody who hasn't seen it. I, I, I think it was a success because of Siskel and Ebert. I think that's oh. what started the ball rolling. Thank them. Now, Andre, did it success launch your acting career? You, you played John the Baptist in Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, and you've also acted with stars like Goldie Hawn and Sylvester Stallone. Uh, have you grown to enjoy acting? Oh, I love acting. I love it. But, you know, it's, it's hard. Uh, it's hard in film, if you're a man of a certain age, to get uh, really great roles. I would say the only great role I got in film was John the Baptist in the Scorsese movie. But I love to act. Well, I, I wonder what that dean at Yale would have thought after all of this. Now, Wally, the two of you collaborated with Louis Mulligan in the 1994 film Vanya on 42nd Street, and you got Julianne Moore to join the cast. Um, how long did you work together on those performance workshops? Um, well, I think say, yeah, go ahead, Wally. I think we worked over the course of about three years, and then, uh, said goodbye to it actually uh we thought you know we'd had that experience and it was over and then uh um i i don't i'm i couldn't swear to it but i think i may have said i miss it even though i was very reluctant to get into it and I never liked that character of Vanya. And I <laughs> You were great as Vanya. I thank you. But I I I think I said I I miss it. And then Andre spoke to all the actors and some of them said, Well, we don't miss it, but we would do it again if if it could be a movie. And Louie had at one point shown an interest in it. And uh, so somehow it all uh, fell together and, uh, you know. But it's not just a straight film of the, of the play. It's almost a documentary of your artistic process. In a way, it looks that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a documentary of our process because our process and Andre's process in working is that we did it differently every time when we were doing it as a play but and you had uh you didn't plan camp. to have any audiences at your performances but you did decide to have a few limited run-throughs did the invitation only process create a mystique around the performances andre uh which might have helped be, uh, it become uh, an underground success you mean vanya yeah. Or my dinner with Andre. Vanya. Vanya on uh, 42nd Street. Well, it, it did.
did develop a mystique, I think, because nobody could get into it. <laughs> so they knew that there was this something playing uh, on 42nd Street, but nobody could get a ticket to it. It, it was incredibly difficult. And very often you want a ticket for what you can't get into. So, yeah, there was a mystique. Alas, there we have no run tickets. out of time, believe it or not. I'm so sorry because I'm having so much fun talking with the two of you. Uh, I'm oh, speaking I, with Andre Gregory, who, uh, because uh, he's written a book that is called This Is Not My Memoir, published by Farris Strauss and Giroux. And uh, we uh, are very pleased to have been joined as well by Wallace Shawn, uh, who has collaborated with Andre on any number of adventures. Thank you both so much. Oh, we love thank being you. with and, you. And Wally, I miss you in COVID. <laughs> I miss you. Hope to see you soon. <laughs> well, uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview. And also many thanks to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, and live engineer Reggie Johnson for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you knew this program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you would like to comment on any of our shows, or if you just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going to give2wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And we need your help to keep this historic station the last on the New York City dial that's completely listener-sponsored on the air. One great way to support WBAI without laying out a lot of money at once is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm pleased to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will receive a free copy of This Is Not My Memoir, the wonderful book that we've been talking about with uh, Andre Gregory and Wallace Shawn. All you need to do is call 516-620-3602 uh, to become a BAI buddy, and we'll take care of the rest. You don't even need to mention the book. My staff will make sure you get it. We'll be listening back to two of our favorite food shows for Thanksgiving. Tune in tomorrow for my conversation with Lou DiPaolo, owner of DiPaolo's Fine Foods uh, in Little Italy, my favorite cheese shop. And on Friday, Josh Wesson will discuss how you can get a great bottle of wine for under $20, a timely show for many of us as we head into this unique holiday season. Have a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. However you choose to spend it, and we'll see you tomorrow. We'll see you on Monday.